We're in Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter 1. Years ago, I wrote about a young Irish woman who emigrated to the U.S. in the first decades of the 20th century. She had family in New York, and they told her that she could find a job there, that she could stay with them as long as she needed to. So she saved, and she scraped, and she purchased a transatlantic fare on an ocean liner. After setting aside a little money that she didn't dare spend, that she knew she'd, she would need when she got to New York, she packed a bag with foodstuffs to carry her through the six-day journey, mostly crackers. When passengers headed to the dining room for lunch or dinner, she went to her small cabin, got out her cracker ration, and she ate every crumb. She did that for five days. On the final day aboard, someone asked her why she never came to the dining room, and she, embarrassed by her poverty, admitted that she couldn't afford her fare and to buy her meals. And the woman said to her, but my dear, all your meals are included in the price of your fare. For five days, she went without breakfast and ate crackers and drank water for lunch and dinner, even though the delicious meals in the dining room were hers by right. They'd already been paid for, but she didn't know what she had. The same thing can happen to us who belong to Christ. He has purchased for us, as the author of Hebrews put it, so great a salvation, but we may not know what we have. Many Christians live on rations who could be feasting. Not St. Paul. He knew God has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those blessings include being chosen by him, made as sons and daughters, granted forgiveness, and given a role in the most important project in the history of the world the headship of Jesus over every person, institution, and thing on earth. Grace has been freely given to us, that's verse 6, even lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, that's verse 8. The delectable fare of the grand dining room is ours, and yet some of us have shut ourselves in our tiny cabins with our crackers and water. We don't realize what's available to us. But Paul prays, He longs for us to see it. He doesn't want Jesus' people aching out in existence when they could be flourishing. And they could be. The opening paragraphs of this letter are a paean of praise to the God who lavishes his people with all they need. But Paul knows that some of Jesus' people are like that poor Irish girl on the ship. They don't know what they have, don't know how to access it, and are living like they're destitute. Let's read our text. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. For this reason, what God has done, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of 
in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 15 plays a now familiar tune. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard it play again and again. When Paul heard about the Ephesians' faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints, he knew they were the real deal. A genuine church with enormous potential to serve the kingdom of God and a real adversary who would try to stop them. In other words, they were people in need of prayer. It should be a warning to us that this church that loved all the saints, one of the things that clued Paul in, these people are the real deal, that this church that loved all the saints would be faulted by Jesus himself within the next few decades for having left their first love. If it could happen to them, solid, exemplary church, it can happen to us. See, the enemy of our souls is too clever to challenge our love for the God who sacrificially loved us. So instead, he challenges our love for the saints who ignore us, exploit us, or take us for granted. See, God's enemy understands that love, the love of God, works on a circuit. He doesn't need to break the circuit between God and his people as long as he can break it between some of God's people and others of God's people. So that's where he concentrates his efforts. When Paul heard about the Ephesians' faith and love, he couldn't stop thinking about them and thanking God for them. Notice how he links thanksgiving and remembering, or literally, making remembrance. In verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. If we, like Paul, would take a little time to remember the people we're praying for, what they're like, what they've done, what's been done to them, what they value, who loves them, who's loved by them. In other words, if we would make remembrance of them, our prayers would be more powerful. Making remembrance is so much more than rattling off names on a prayer list. Try it. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, like his prayer for the Philippians and the Colossians, features one request, one principal request. Maybe we ought to follow that example, too. And I'm not saying we shouldn't make more than one request for people, but that we would do well to have a principal request for each person, one that stands out when we bring that person before our minds, and then bring them before the Lord. What is that thing for this person, this group of people? After repeatedly holding these believers in his mind, Paul's one request for them is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, literally, the Father of the glory, that's a loaded phrase if there ever was one, the Father of the glory would give them, literally, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Another, this is the third one, Pauline prayer for people to receive knowledge. Is that how we pray for people? 
mean, we often pray that they'll have peace and provision and comfort and healing, which are all good things to pray for people. We should pray for those things. But Paul routinely prays for their knowledge. When Paul writes of a spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's probably referring to the Holy Spirit. Even if he's thinking of a human spirit characterized by wisdom and revelation, and in Greek you can't tell. It's not like they're capital letters or anything. Well, actually, in the ancient manuscripts, every letter is a capital letter. Even if he's thinking of the human spirit characterized by wisdom and revelation, the Holy Spirit will be behind that. Wisdom has to do with knowing what you already have, those spiritual blessings Paul cataloged in verses 3 through 14. If you haven't read that for a while, go back and do it. Wisdom has to know with knowing what you already have and what to do with it. So go back to our friend on the transatlantic cruise. Wisdom knows what's covered by the purchase price of the fare. In our case, wisdom knows what Christ has purchased, what's available to us, what's possible for us. While wisdom takes advantage of knowledge we already have, revelation imparts knowledge that we don't yet have. So because God is infinite, revelation is and always will be needed and will always be a delight. Now there are dangers to this because some people will tell us that they've had revelations that are inconsistent with the revelation God's already given us in his son and in his word. So we need to be aware of that. But both will always be needed. And so Paul prays for both a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And notice that it's in the knowledge of God, literally. The NIV says to know him better, but literally, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The knowledge of God is of more practical use than the knowledge of economics, philosophy, mathematics, physics, mechanics, or any other body of knowledge you can think of. The knowledge of God is life-giving. That's John 17, verse 3. The knowledge of God brings grace and peace in abundance to people. Where the knowledge of God is present, men and women and children flourish. Where the knowledge of God is not present, people dry up. That's why Paul asked God to give these Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. But what happens when people receive that spirit? The eyes of their hearts, this is verse 18, are enlightened. The NIV 84 translates verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The latest edition of the NIV drops the word also. The Greek has neither the words also nor the words I pray. Um, they, they were probably added, I'm guessing, as a way to break up a very long run-on sentence. You know, in English, you don't like run-on sentences. In ancient Greek, they were fine. And Paul has, one of, has the longest run-on sentence in the Bible in this chapter. This isn't the first one. This one started in verse 15, and verse 18 is a continuation of that sentence. Paul's not making a second request here, which is what it sounds like when you read the NIV. He's stating the desired outcome of the first and only request. 
He prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. The heart in Scripture, this is important to understand, the heart in Scripture is the human command center. We think of it as the center of emotions. Um, People in biblical times did not think that way. The center of the emotions was your gut. The heart is the command center. It's from the heart, not the mind, that decisions are handed down. To have the eyes of the heart enlightened is to have the command center fully informed. It's from the heart that direction comes, that decisions are made. Donald Miller, the author of Blue Like Jazz and about 20 other Christian books, had a bad habit. He chewed tobacco. And people told him it's not good for him. It's not good for him. He ought to quit. He knew he ought to quit. But he couldn't. Uh, He'd been told that it causes bad breath, it causes gum disease, it causes tooth decay, and even cancer of the mouth and throat. So he knew he should stop, he just couldn't do it. Then one day he was in his car listening to the radio and a public service announcement came on, and 30 seconds later, Donald Miller no longer chewed tobacco. In the time of 30 seconds. And he heard some man in this strange, distorted, weird voice warning of the dangers of chewing tobacco. He already knew all that stuff. And then the man explained why his voice sounded like it did. He had lost his lower jaw to cancer from chewing tobacco. During that 30-second PSA, the eyes of Donald Miller's heart, his command center, were open. Suddenly, what had been impossible for him, quitting tobacco, became possible, even urgent. He says that as the man spoke, he could visualize his face without a lower jaw. And he chewed tobacco then for the last time. Never again. The eyes of a person's mind, now that's not a biblical phrase, but you get the idea. The eyes of a person's mind are able to see all kinds of things in the Bible. Good things, true things, beautiful things. But seeing them has little effect on the person. He might eloquently teach them to others, but he's pretty much the same after he's seen them as he was before he saw them. But when the eyes of a person's heart are enlightened, he's transformed. He thinks differently. He acts differently. Now, that illustration might lead us to assume that whenever the eyes of a person's heart are opened, they see bad things like bad habits. That certainly happens, but mostly they see good things. That's where Paul puts the emphasis. He knows there are wonderful things that we'll miss without the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Chief among them, recognizing God in our daily lives. Years ago, a tourist at Basel, Switzerland, climbed onto a streetcar and sat down to the 20th century's most eminent theologian, Karl Barth. The two started chatting, and Barth asked him if he was new to the city. The tourist said he was, so Barth asked him if there was anything he was hoping to see while he was there. And the man said, yes, I would love to meet the famous theologian, Karl Barth. Or he's sitting right next to him. Do you know him? And Bart answered, well, as a matter of fact, I do. I give him a shave every morning. The tourist was absolutely thrilled. When he got back to the hotel, he was telling everyone, I met Karl Bart's barber today. <laughs> Without the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we may fail to recognize God when he speaks to us. 
we'll think, oh, that was a good idea, or that was a good sermon, and we'll miss who it is that's speaking. Without the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we'll not make the most of the things God has made available to us. Paul mentions three of those things in this prayer. He prays that God will give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation and so enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they can, one, know the hope of his calling, two, know the riches of his inheritance, and three, know his power that's at work on behalf of believers. We won't have time to look at all three of those today, but we're going to look at the first one, and next week we'll get the next two. The first thing Paul wants the Ephesians to know is what is the hope of his calling. That's a literal translation of verse 18. What is the hope of his calling? If they know, and if they don't have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, they won't know. But if they know what God had in mind for them when he called them, their entire outlook on life will change. If they know the hope of their calling, they'll be able to endure hardship, They will be able to endure pain and even anguish in ways that will impress the world and honor God. Paul knew that the hope of our calling keeps people from being blown off course by the prevailing winds of culture. And sometimes, and I think right now is one of those times, the winds of culture blow hard. Hope enables people who are hard-pressed to endure A shared hope, which is a beautiful thing, makes it possible for people of different races, from different social classes, with different educational backgrounds to work together, play together, and be for each other. Paul refers to this hope as the hope of his calling. Let's not misread that as if Paul had written the hope of your calling. See, this calling is not full of hope because we receive it, but because God issues it. It's not just a vocational calling, like a calling to be a pastor or a school teacher. It's a calling to join Jesus' side, his campaign, and work for him, to be his special people. In Philippians, it's referred to as the high calling or the upward call, but we're liable to misunderstand that. High calling sounds like, oh, the vocation of a doctor as opposed to the vocation of a factory worker. That's not at all what Paul means. If we translate it as some versions do as the upward call of God, it sounds as if we're being called to leave earth and take an extended eternity-long vacation in heaven. That's not it either. When I was in high school, I used to sit with a guy at lunch table, and, and we'd, we'd talk, and the, the election was going on at the time. Richard Nixon was running for office, and he had promised that if he was elected, he was bringing our boys home from Vietnam. So when I was in high school, hoping to avoid Vietnam, uh, I would hear guys talk about their brothers getting called up. They're being drafted called to active duty, called to serve. That's more like what Paul has in mind. We've been called up. In high school, getting called up did not sound very helpful. What does Paul have in mind? 
by the hope, literal translation, of his calling. The hope of his calling is that our side, that is Christ's side, will be victorious. Our king will conquer the enemies of evil, suffering, and death. Heaven will come to earth and there will be peace and no more fear. As Isaiah put it, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, the earth was made for that. If you wanted to sum up this hope of our calling in one word, it would, it would be hard to do better than the word glory. We hope for the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Paul says. We're hoping for Jesus' glory when he's acknowledged head over all things in heaven and on earth. And we hope to be part of that glory since God called us to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hope for the day when our faith will, as Peter put it, result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The day when, as Paul put it, the glory will be revealed in us. Our calling is to be part of this with the rest of Jesus' people. All of us here and all of his people everywhere. We share the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We hope to play a role in the biggest, most glorious thing in history, a role in making the world come out right and remaking it. It seems absurd to think that people like us can't have anything to do with so great and glorious a goal and yet, because we are called by God himself, entirely of his mercy and grace, we're a part of this. You have been called up to live for, fight for, and die for Jesus Christ. It is a calling that is full of hope full of glory. It portends a better world, a united human family living peacefully, joyfully, lovingly, and creatively in God's presence with God in our midst. That's the great promise of the Old Testament again and again, and the promise that we see finally fulfilled prophetically in Revelation 21. It's not a wistful hope but a living one, already substantiated by Jesus' resurrection. It is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. If you think, but I've never heard that call, then listen and hear it now. God is calling calling you to join his side, to join his people, to serve his kingdom. God is calling you to his glory. Can you hear him? He wants you. Don't dodge his call. Let's pray. God, 
we follow the apostle in asking you and, and continuing to ask you to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, not only is the earth made to be full of the knowledge of the Lord, so are we. Show us the great hope of your calling until it becomes a living thing inside of us. We ask you to do this because of what Jesus purchased for us on Calvary. Do this in Jesus' name, please, our Lord. Amen.